Our text this morning comes from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. This is the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered the temple, or he entered Jerusalem rather, and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they were coming from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us our King, Jesus, so clearly. We pray, Father, as your word goes forth, it would do what only your word can do. It would interact with the power of the Holy Spirit to produce change in the lives of your people, and it will hit each one of us differently as you have purposed and do a different thing, a different work, for you are amazingly wise and powerful. 
So we understand and believe that when the man whom God has called stands in front of the, the people of God on the day that the Lord has set aside and, and preaches the word of God, that you enter into that process and you do what you want, infallibly, reliably, do what you want. You've given us these tools and these commandments for our well-being, and we bless you for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in uh, 2017, I bought a new car. Now, I have only had three new cars in my whole life. Uh, in 1991, I bought a little tiny Ford Festiva, because that was all I could afford. Uh, in 1996, I bought a Ford Contour. And then in 2017, I bought a Hyundai Elantra, which is the car theoretically I drive today, but which my daughter has adopted. And uh, I drive her little Chevy Cobalt instead. Uh, but for most of the rest of my life, I drove cars that were just maybe half a level, maybe a level above junk. They were just were. Uh, and, and by 2017, I had had a rapid succession of used cars that were just terrible. They were money pits. And uh, I was tired of working on them, and I didn't want to pay other people to work on them anymore. And I said to myself, I am going to buy a new car, even though it's not a great time for me personally to buy a new car. I'm going to buy a brand new Hyundai because they've got a 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty, and I am not going to lay a wrench on that dang thing for five or six years. And that's so far what's happened. Uh, the only thing I've had to do to it is put front brakes on it. And it's been a, a great little car. But I was just sick of working on cars. I was sick of used cars. I'd had every kind of used car I could find. And I said to myself, I am just over it. I'm over it. Have you ever had that feeling? You're over it? Maybe your house is a, a money pit and you're ready to throw in the towel and cut your losses and put it up for sale because you are like, I am over it. I can't believe all the stuff that's happened with this house. I don't have any confidence that the future is going to get any better. I'm over it. Maybe you've got a, a toxic friendship where all the giving comes from you and all the taking comes from the other person and, and you break it off and you, and you just say, look, I, I'm just over it with her, you might say. Maybe it's a, a job. I've had a lot of jobs that I was just over. You've got crummy work, you're treated indifferently by management, several of your co-workers are crazy and lazy, and you're uh, uh, underpaid. So you find another job, and you put in your notice, and at your exit interview, they ask you about your reasons for quitting, and so you lay it out for them, and you say, this is why I'm quitting, I am just over it. Being over it arises from the knowledge that investing any more time or any more resources into something that's broken is just not going to help. It won't be effective. It will just be a waste of your time or a waste of those resources. Do you know that there are times when God says, I am just over it? There are times where he says that. The Bible describes a lot of these times. God sends prophets with warnings and the people Stone the prophets and don't listen to the warnings. God patiently waits decades, sometimes even centuries, so that no human being could ever come to him and say, Lord, you never gave us an opportunity to correct course. You were not fair, God. We didn't have any time to figure out what to do right. God said, I've given you centuries. I've given you decades. You've had plenty of time. 
and now I'm just over it. And then at the appointed time, when God's patience comes to an end, and he moves decisively, and he brings the threatened disaster or the threatened punishment, you know in that moment, God is over it. He's just over it. In today's passage, we find three episodes in the life and the ministry of Jesus which function almost as living parables. And they're designed to communicate to anyone who really wants to know that God is soon going to sweep away the entire Jewish system of worship, the entire system of sacrifice, and he is soon going to destroy the Jewish nation as a national entity, and he's going to scatter the Jewish people across the face of the earth so that they inhabit other nations and no longer have a land of their own for almost 2,000 years. And he's doing that because it has not functioned as it should. It has not kept its focus on God as it should. It has done evil unrepentantly. And it's using God's name and God's worship to aggrandize themselves, to accumulate power in order to abuse that power, and to accumulate wealth as well. And they have rejected and now are plotting to kill the Messiah that God has sent to them, who is the one that they say they were longing for. Well, this first living parable uh, is, is the, the point of the focus of Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's riding on a borrowed donkey. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can construct a timeline of events. There's no one account of this event that has all the relevant information. And so you've got to kind of grab pieces from the Scriptures to get the fullest picture. Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem from Bethany, a little town, maybe five, six, seven miles outside of Jerusalem, uh, walking distance, definitely. And he's been staying with a dear friend of his and his sister's. And that's Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Jesus has just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And a lot of people saw it, and everybody was talking about it. The city, at this point in time, it's the Passover season, and, and Jews would migrate into Jerusalem from all over the known world to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And so the city, every year at this time, was swollen with huge crowds from all over the known world. And people are talking about Jesus. No doubt there were people from Galilee there, Galileans. And in John chapter 6, we're told that the Galileans were so impressed by the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry that in John chapter 6 and verse 15, it says they were going to come and they were going to make him king by force. And here comes the king now. Now Jesus comes on a donkey, and he's fulfilling a prophecy of Zechariah, which said that Israel's king would come on a donkey, he would come gentle, he would come righteous, and he would come bringing salvation. And great crowds are ahead of him and are behind him, and they are shouting, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of Jerusalem is abuzz. And they're saying, who is this? And the answer that they've got is, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this language that the crowd is using comes straight out of the Messianic Psalms in the Old Testament. 
Hosanna means, Lord, save now. And, and there's a, a clear uh, allusion to Jesus as the son of David. So they're saying, the, and, and they, they're saying this on purpose because the Messiah had to be a descendant of David. And they're saying, here's the son of David. He's coming to us. He's got all of these interesting things that he's doing that nobody else can do. Hosanna, save us, son of David. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Now, when a Jew says something's in the highest, that's a, 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 a euphemism, an indirect way of talking about God because they avoided using the name of God, many of them in that time. And, and so all of these words are a clear uh, finger pointing to the Messiah. It's a clear allusion to the Messiah being a gift to these people from God. Psalm 118 gives us the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic psalm. But it also gives us the phrase, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the people seem clear on who they think Jesus is. The people are saying to themselves, perhaps at last, here is Hamoshiach ben David, the Messiah, the son of David. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus pauses at an overlook, and he sees all of Jerusalem laid out before him, and he weeps, and he prophesies. He prophesies the destruction that will come on Jerusalem. There will be a blowback from the people of Israel's own sin and own rebellion. And God, in the midst of that rebellion, abandons them. And he gives them into the hands of the Romans who are at the gates of the city. And Jesus, weeping, says, The things that make for peace have been hidden from your eyes. What that means is, you're going to be destroyed because you did not know the time of your visitation. Soon this crowd will grow disappointed with Jesus. They'll grow disillusioned with Jesus and they will turn on him. In just a few days, the crowds that were crying Hosanna will be saying things like, no, give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. His blood be on us and our children. And crucify him. There's an ancient Jewish historian who, who lived during this time and a little bit after this time and, and tried to help the Romans understand these crazy people that they were ruling, and, and his name was Flavius Josephus. And Josephus writes about this period that Jesus prophesies about. And, and, and it took place approximately 37 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And it tells of the Jews under siege. And rather than fighting with the Romans, they're fighting with each other. They're, they're burning their own foodstuffs to keep their, their opponents inside of the city walls from getting them. Uh, they're murdering each other. And there's starvation and even cannibalism in the city as the siege by the Romans goes on. It was uh, reported that, that the eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, which was solid brass, 
and so heavy that 20 men were, were needed to open it and, or shut it, and they could only, 20 men pushing on it could only do that with great difficulty. And, and the, the Josephus says that door, which they thought was secure and was going to keep their enemies out, just opened by itself in the middle of the night. And the common people were like, oh, that must mean that God has showed up and he opened that door. But the, the people that were a little more knowledgeable and had their heads on straight were like, that was our security. And now God just opened it. What God is saying here is we're in trouble. So suddenly that door opens by itself. Now, there are other things that happen too. In the middle of the night, um, angelic armies are seen by the citizens of Jerusalem in the clouds. And that makes them nervous. And then one day, one night, as the priests were performing their ceremonies, there was a quaking and a great noise and the sound of a great multitude speaking as one and saying, let us remove hence. Those were the angels of the Lord who were guarding that temple. And now they're saying, we're out of here. The Gospel of Mark alone, among the Gospel writers, mentions that Jesus entered the temple and he inspected the whole thing from top to bottom very carefully. And then due to the lateness of the hour, he exited the temple and went back to Bethany for the night. The, the next morning, as he's walking back to Jerusalem, he's hungry. Apparently, he didn't get breakfast at Lazarus' house, and the, the waffle house was closed. And so he spies a fig tree in full leaf, and he walks over to it looking for figs. Now, the fig trees in that area put forth two crops per year. In about April or May, figs, small figs, start growing, and, and they're, the, they're sort of the, the first figs, they're the, the mini crop, uh, and, and the fruit is smaller on that crop. And, and, and this happens usually in about April or May, uh, and, and, and in this stage of the tree's growth, the figs will start developing before the spring leaves have actually come out into fullness. And so that tree that Jesus encounters is covered in leaves. And when you see a fig tree covered in leaves at that approximate time of the year, you think, well, the figs start first and then the leaves, so there should be figs on that tree. And then there would be a second crop of figs that were larger about September or October, and, and it, that was harvested then. But, but normally, if the tree was in full leaf, you would expect to find early figs because they start growing before the leaves do. Well, this tree is covered with leaves, which is odd. Perhaps it's in a, a sheltered spot, someplace where the sun keeps it warm uh, more than others because it's very early in the year. It's not, says Mark, the season for figs. Mark says that. And Jesus walks over to it, and, he, and he's looking for figs. That is, he's looking for fruit. He, he sees the leaves, and he says, well, if there's leaves, there ought to be fruit if the fig tree was performing as normal. But this fig tree is a faker fig tree. It, it looks good from a distance, but it's fruitless. Now, there, there's a tangential issue here that in the providence of God, we ought to discuss. Uh, this past Wednesday at Job 12, 12, we were watching an episode of The Chosen, which leads up to the Sermon on the Mount. 
Um, and Jesus is portrayed in this episode of The Chosen undergoing um, a creative process to craft the Sermon on the Mount, uh, something like I would undergo if I was to write a sermon. He, he thinks of ideas, and then he's, he rejects them. He, he puts his material one way, and then he rearranges it in different orders because he thinks it, it's better than the first time he did it. He even solicits advice from Matthew about where to put things. Now, just to be clear, the Scriptures do not mention anything one way or the other about how Jesus came up with the Sermon on the Mount. But that episode was written to invite us to ponder a question, and it's a good question. And the question is, what was the interior thought life of Jesus like? His, his disciples, even in that episode, ask the question, can he make a mistake? Can he not know something? Now, the, this question in theology is addressed under the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ. Everybody say, hypostatic union. Hypostatic. Great, you are Greek scholars now. And the hypostatic union is where we try to understand how the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus fit together. And it's not an easy question. And the church, as they were hashing this out, the people in the church made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and you find if you make a mistake, it takes a while to recognize it as a mistake. But then you're like, oh, that was really bad. And these people are now heretics that have embraced this and won't let go. And so there's all kinds of heresies and errors associated with understanding the hypostatic union. So you've got to be careful, right? Um, here's what we know. Jesus was and is fully divine. He was God. God in the flesh, right? But Jesus was also fully human. And to be human is to be subject to things like growth, where at one stage you cannot do something, and then later on you develop and are able to do that thing that you couldn't do before. Okay? It's to be subject to a, a process called learning, where you are ignorant of something like how to read or how to do algebra or whatever, and then you acquire information and you build on that information. You can also be ignorant of things because you are one person in one place and something is happening in another place far from you and you don't have any direct knowledge of what's happening because you aren't there to hear it, you aren't there to see it. And that's just part of existing in a body. Well, what do we know from the scriptures about Jesus? Well, we know that the boy Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. And that's Luke 2, 52. It tells us that. So think about this for a minute. There was a point in Jesus' life where he had less wisdom and by a process of development, he attained more wisdom, right? That's what it means to grow in wisdom, right? He was either shorter or younger. The word stature could mean either. And then he got taller and older. Trip out on this. It says that he grew in favor with God. 
God, the Son of God, grew in favor with God. He never was disfavored by God, but there was a time when he had less favor with God, and then he developed more favor with God, because that's what it means to grow in favor with God. And Hebrews 5.8 gives us a clue as to what that might look like. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now, when did most of his suffering occur? Well, it, it kind of started with his, the beginning of his public ministry and all the people that opposed him and tried to kill him and everything else, but it really reached its crescendo during the last week of his life, didn't it? So if we just take Hebrews 5 and verse 8 at face value, he was still learning obedience right up to the end which is kind of what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Uh, you know, he's learning there. He's, he's showing that he has learned, right? Father, I, I don't want to go to the cross. Is there another way? But if there's not, I'll do what you say, and I'll suffer. I've learned obedience. I'm submitting my will to your will. I've learned how to do that. You need to learn how to do that too. In this passage that we're talking about today here in Mark 11, Jesus is portrayed as genuinely ignorant about whether there are figs on that tree or not. He doesn't know. He sees leaves. He makes an inference, but it turns out that inference was incorrect. And he's really disappointed because he's hungry, because the Waffle House was closed. He's really disappointed, and, and, and he's even annoyed at finding no figs on that tree. And there are several other episodes of this kind of thing in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't know something. But William Hendrickson, who is one of my favorite commentators, he was a professor at Calvin Theological Seminary up until 1958. He was actually the, the, the New Testament scholar who did the translation for the NIV Book of Revelation. So he's quite a scholar. And, and he says some interesting things in his commentary on Mark. And I'm just going to, there are three little brief passages, I'm just going to read them to him. And noticing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could perhaps find anything on it. And then Dr. Hendrickson writes, but was not Jesus omniscient? The present passage seems to imply that the master would at times gather information in ways similar to ours. At other times, his knowledge was wholly supernatural. And then he says, this is not the only place where we've discussed this problem. There are a couple of more, and he references those, and I'll just read those quickly to you. Uh, one of them is at Mark chapter 5 and verse 33, when, when the woman who has the issue of blood reaches out and grabs the hem of his cloak, and Jesus feels the power go out of him, and he says, anybody know? Who touched me? Was he asking a genuine question, scholars wonder, or did he know and he was just faking it? Hendrickson writes this. Now, the fact that according to his divine nature, Jesus was omniscient cannot be denied. Also, it cannot be denied that his human nature at times imparted to the human, I'm sorry, that his divine nature at times imparted to the human nature information which that human nature, apart from such impartation, would probably have not received. See Matthew 7, 27, John 1, 47 and 48. Yet this does not mean that Christ's human nature was also itself 
omniscient. See Matthew 24, 36, Mark 11, 13, and is not Mark 5, 32 in the same class? The expression, he continued to look around or was looking around to see, certainly supports the view that he did not know who touched him. One, one last one, one last one. In the beginning of the book where he's taking on the main themes in the book of Mark, he says, now a person's willingness to surrender himself to Jesus depends upon how he views him. In other words, faith always implies doctrine. Even narrative is not without doctrinal implications. And the Christology implied throughout Mark's gospel is that to begin with, Jesus is thoroughly human. He eats, he drinks, he becomes hungry, he touches people and is touched by them, he becomes grieved and indignant, he falls asleep from fatigue and is awakened. He asks that a boat be provided for him so that he may not be crushed. He, for a while, plies a trade. He has a mother and brothers and sisters. Viewed as a man, his knowledge is limited so that he turns around to see who touched him and walks up to a fig tree to see whether it has edible fruit. He has a human body and a human spirit, and he even dies. So one of the things we want to do, loved ones, is be careful in our zeal to guard the divinity of his divine nature that we don't empty his human nature of its significance he was fully human. That's part of why he saves us. An old theologian from the first 100 years of the, 185 years of the church said, that which is not assumed, that which is not taken up into God, is not healed. So he had to have a human nature in order to be our advocate, our intercessor. So Jesus curses the fig tree. And 24 hours later, they pass by that same tree and it is completely and utterly dead. The Greek means it's, it's dry as a bone from the roots up. And you may be saying to yourself, and a lot of people have said over the centuries, why in the world was Jesus so mean to that poor tree? I mean, it didn't do anything to him except, you know, have some leaves. Well, it's because the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. So, for instance, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 13 about the Jewish people as a nation and how they're like a fig tree. That's Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I've been seeking fruit from this fig tree. Isn't it interesting how long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. For three years, I've been seeking fruit from this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, the cursing of the fig tree is an extension of that parable. That gardener dug around it and he fertilized it, and in the case of Israel, it didn't help. That tree is to be destroyed by the decree of the owner of the vineyard. And once again, 
we find the Jewish people looking impressive and religious with their rituals and their sacrifices and their ceremonial laws and their magnificent temple. And it was magnificent. It was one of the, the, ancient, the wonders of the ancient world. But the inward reality, deep in their hearts, is altogether different. There is no fruit, and God says, I'm over it now. There's no fruit. That is not just for Jews in 33 AD, church. Jesus himself says in John 15, every branch that abides in me bears much fruit, and the Father will prune it so that it bears even more fruit, but every branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and burned. Well, that's what Jesus is saying when he curses that fig tree and it withers. Last episode is the familiar one too. Jesus enters the temple. And once again, we've got to pull from the different places in the scriptures. He, he knots a cord of rope into a whip and he begins beating the ones who are buying and selling with that whip. It, Jesus wasn't very Christian, right? That's a joke. You can laugh at that. Jesus wasn't... Jesus did that. If, you're, if your image of Jesus is, does not include that, that kind of behavior, then you don't understand who Jesus is in his fullness, and you've got a partial picture of Jesus. He takes a whip, and he starts driving the people out. The guy's like, I just showed up here with my morning coffee to sell some doves, and this crazy guy is coming after me with a whip. And then he turns over the tables, and he sends the gold and silver coins clashing into the filth and the dung. You see, this part of the temple is called the, the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place in the whole temple complex that a God-fearing Gentile could approach God and worship and pray in that temple. This was the only place. There was a, a sign. There, there was a, another courtyard inside, and there was a sign on it in Latin and Greek and Hebrew that says, if you're not circumcised and you pass this point, your blood is on your own head. They would kill you if you went into that part. So this part of the temple is all they've got. Now, now, the money changers and the animal sellers, they were making obscene profits. They were overcharging for animals, for the sacrifices, and they were saying, well, you know, if you brought your own animal, it has to pass inspection. It can't have a blemish on it. And, and maybe you drag your own animal all the way here, and you hand it in, and the, and the guy doing the animal inspecting says, nope, it's got a blemish, and then what, what, what's going to You're stuck. So why don't you come here and buy one of our certified approved animals for sacrifice? And the guys who sold the animals and the priests who did the inspecting were in cahoots with each other. If you came from your home country with foreign money that had images of pagan gods or pagan rulers on it. It had to be exchanged for the only acceptable currency to pay the temple tax and to make offerings in. That was the temple shekel. So they would trade your money out, skim a little bit off the top. Like, like any tourist trap or any crowded venue, space was at a, a premium. You know, I, not too long ago I went to a Cavs game. And I don't know if you've been to a Cavs game, but if you, if you go, don't go hungry or thirsty, right? Because this cup cost $11 for a, cup, for a cup of nasty Diet Pepsi, $11, right? That's a ripoff. But that's what they do to you when they get you someplace where you've got limited supply and high demand, they gouge you. Well, that's the same way everywhere. When, when my wife and I lived in Sturgis, we ran a, 
a shaved ice business, a concession trailer, and we would run it during the year, and then we would run it during the Sturgis Rally. And it was nothing, it was common to pay eight to $10,000 for a small patch of an asphalt lot to set our trailer on. And so, of course, we increased our prices to, to cover those increased expenses. And lots of people came from all around trying to get rich selling stuff to the half a million people who showed up at my little town of 7,000 every year in August. And it's the same here. The authorities want to maximize profits, and they look around for more space to rent, and they decide to rent the court of the Gentiles. It was a gesture of contempt towards any Gentile who loved God and wanted to walk in God's ways. And God had designated that place to them in Isaiah 56 when he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus adds, but you have made it a den of robbers. But there's one other fact that Mark alone records. Jesus was there all day. He started in the morning and he was there all day. And for that whole day, he would not let anyone carry anything through the temple. The whole day. So what Jesus was doing was stopping the functioning of the entire temple for that one day. This was symbolic as an act of judgment, pointing to the day when the temple operations would cease forever because the temple would be destroyed. And the, the day was at hand that Jesus had spoken of with the Samaritan woman at the well, when he, the day when God's worship would not take place either on a mountain in Samaria or on the temple mount in Jerusalem, but rather the Father would seek worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. By the way, that's the, that's the motive for evangelism. God wants worshipers. He doesn't have enough worshipers yet. He says, go out and get me some more worshipers. Tell people about Jesus so they can come and worship me too. These three episodes point to an end of God's patience with a people, with a religion that is about the external over the internal. It's about big and rich and impressive over plain and humble and God-oriented. The, the merely verbal assent to the right thing, the excitement and the emotions generated by fickle crowds who are thinking worldly thoughts and concerned with worldly pursuits, and not a heart for God. You see, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart, and God hates and curses the outward show of spiritual life like leaves on that fig tree if there is no fruit. And that's not just a message for those people in that day. It's a message for us today. Loved ones, the Christian church in America in our day is dying. Started dying about seven or eight years ago, 10 in some other places. The church is dying, and it's dying precisely because God is withdrawing his grace and his power and his protection from it, and he's doing that because we have become a people enamored with the same things that sunk the Jews. The marks of a successful church in our day are the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And if you have lots of those things, then you're a successful church, says the says the contemporary church in America. Attendance, building, and cash, loved ones, are not a bad thing in and of themselves. What matters is how you got there 
and how you're planning on staying there. What kind of people are you producing? What are you really doing there? And what would happen if God took it all away? What place does all that hold in your heart? The fruit on the fig tree that Jesus wants to see in us is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And God tells us in the Bible what the fruit of the Holy Spirit looks like. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. If we concentrate on becoming the kind of people whose insides are transformed so that the fruit of the Spirit naturally flows out of us, everything else will fall into place and take care of itself. If we don't, we'll cease to exist. God talks about that in the book of Revelation. He mentions those seven churches, and he, he says to more than one of them, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand. The lampstand is his presence. He's like, whatever you're doing there, it's not about me, so I'm just going to leave. And you can just do what you want to do for yourself. And sooner or later, you'll peter out under your own devices. So let us decide, and this is where we're going after Easter, to so order our lives that we never hear God say to us, hey guys, I'm just over it. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.